So, so Stephen has been battling a uh, a nosebleed all morning. Oh, is that right? Yeah. yeah. Go on, go on. Do the fish called one. I think, I think it's. I used to be. Yeah, yeah when I was too. a kid. Yeah. yeah. And then I got uh, punched in the face by my three-year-old yesterday. I think it might be. That uh, might have. Yeah. Yeah. I once got a nosebleed on the morning of the Cricket World Cup final in 1992, mm. and I fainted. And how so much blood came out? Quite a lot of blood came out, and I was, I was quite unwell. So, because my parents were both teachers at the school that I went to, they took me into school, and I just lay in the, the, the nurse's room on the bed because I was very lightheaded and clearly unwell. But they, they couldn't get so any. Is that school? This so happened? this is a school. I was going to say, I put you well, at home, and the, uh, no, your parents took you to school. No, they did. To the they did. A and E because I could, they, they couldn't. There was nobody to look after me. Oh. So they took me to school, and I just remember listening on the radio to the whole of the World Cup final in 1992. Who won? Uh, Pakistan beat England. Best way to be off school is to, to listen to the to the World Cup. My yeah. mum was a GP. She's, she's, oh, she's now retired. Yeah, right. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. Um, I love how you re, re, reset up stories just in case people have. Yeah, people, oh, yeah, people know Doctor Smith. Yeah, that's new, new, new people listening all the time. Yeah, you really got to remember that. Both of them, both of the new listeners to this one. Uh, <laughs> your mum and your. Dad. How long was she a GP for? She was a GP for forty years. Wowzers. The anyway, so I remember getting playing football at Stroll uh, for I think it was second against first or something. I was in. I was you were sub for the second. I, no, no, I was. I was number ten for the second, and I. Well, um, number ten on the on the list of players they wanted to use. Yeah. Or were you actually wearing the number ten? I was wearing. You, you were playing in, in the role. I was in the hole. Uh, split strikers, and I got a lazy el- striker. an elbow in the kidney from a lad called Johnny Johnny Christie, uh, who was he was known for that notorious was, Harrogate yeah, hard man, yeah. Harrogate <laughs> hard man Johnny Christie, and I think it Johnny Christie, surname was definitely Christie, Johnny was Chopper Christie, <laughs> Chopper Christie. Anyway, good so, with Johnny. so I went home and after stroll, obviously as you do, and went to the toilet and what came out was less yellow than red. And I went down to my GP mother and said, Mum, thin can pass in blood, and she went, Oh, right. Well, let me know if, it, if you keep on doing it. And I was like, right, okay, will do. So all that night. Yeah. She gave you an aspirin. Ne- gave me paracetamol, told me to go to bed. Uh, woke up the next morning, still doing it. She's like, yeah, we well, should probably still go to stroll. And then, <laughs> how old were you? So about 17. 17? Yeah, so this would be... So you're a grown man? I was a grown man who... Well, just listen to the story, Chin. Sorry. So then, um, then at about 11 o'clock, I, get a, I was in some class or something, presumably, and someone... One of the stool kind of receptionists, administrative staff, came to find me and said, Rory, you've got to go to the front of the stool. Your mum is coming to pick you up. And it turned out that she'd spoken in, in work that day to a kidney specialist and said, oh, yeah, just, just, just while I'm here, while I've got you. She was talking about some other patient. She said, while well, I've got you, my son's been got, got elbowed in the kidney yesterday. And um, he's been passing blood for t- about 24 hours. And the kidney specialist said, so is he in hospital? Is he taking him to Jimmy's? Is he in hospital? And she went, no, 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 he's at stool. And he, he just went, what are you doing? Get him to hospital straight away. So I've never seen my mum so panicked. It's hilarious. It turned out I had a really badly bruised kidney, which you don't want. That's what you call in the medical industry a referral. That's, uh, that's tough love right there. That really is. That is. That's the sort of doctrine that Alison Smith That's when, you know, when, when you're ill and you've got a mother who's a GP, you think this is going to be beneficial to, to my well-being. No, 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 no. Let's do completely the opposite. Yeah. My new father-in-law is an A&E specialist mm. surgeon. Mm. So, you know, if I have a severed limb... He's the guy. He's the guy. He's the guy to go to. Severed yeah. limb. Yeah. Go to the GP with a severed limb. He said, oh, you need to go to A&E, to a surgical specialist. Ah, okay. Do you work with bandsaws or combine harvesters regularly? or you know, just in case. <laughs> severed limb. It's always nice to know. 
It's the, important. Man's, the man's a genius. The man is a legend. Yeah, but I wouldn't get one of your limbs like, severed like to find out how good he is. No, I already know. It's <laughs> good to know. It's important to know like a plumber and a mechanic and electrician and someone who can reattach a limb. I think that's. I've, I've always felt like that. That is the, the the big fab four. Is it more important to know a plumber or an electrician? Plumber. Plumber. Yeah. I'd say plumber. Would yeah. you stay? Yes, because I know a plumber and don't know an electrician, which is why I had to ask Rory for one. Paul Livewire Taylor. <laughs> Paul, Paul Livewire. The lights around Taylor. <laughs> Have you sorted out your electrical problem? Uh, it's all sorted. Thank you very Good. much indeed. Pay me or your lights go out. <laughs> Steve is not contributing because he has a tissue up his nose. This um, is Set Piece Many, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. You rejoin us at the home of multiple chinches and also some very nutritionally satisfied non-chinches as well. We all hope that nutrition was very far down the list priorities as you tucked into your manifold calorific meals over the last few days. Chinch's Christmas lunch was three slices of cold turkey and a protein shake. And that's why you're looking <laughs> so well, blend, it's blended together. <laughs> yeah, exactly. uh, we have been enjoying what Nikki has beautifully termed a dirty bacon sandwich. Um, dirty because she didn't wash any of the items yeah. prior to making it. Her hands are filthy. Uh, but it was uh, utterly delightful. I had mushrooms, Steve didn't, Rory had no egg, and Chinch had everything. Well, yeah, I don't understand this. What did you t- Mushrooms and... Bacon. But, uh, strange. No egg. Again, it's a lubrication issue. It's not. I just, I, I just, yeah, eggs in sandwiches, not, not, not for me, unless it's uh, okay. with mayonnaise and cress. This then is the set-piece <laughs> menu team that sits alongside me, Hugh Ferris, coupled with the presents that they are predicted to have opened on that cold and frosty morning. Steve Wyeth, an amended historical picture book of Match of the Day with a bonus chapter detailing the spectacular events of what is now known as Wyeth Weekend. <laughs> Rory Smith. When will we move past this? <laughs> Never. 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 There's a new year coming up. We can turn a, turn a leaf in that particular book then. Rory Smith, a CD of Sean Dyche reads the classics. <laughs> the, Burnley, the Burnley manager lends his gravelly tones to Homer's Iliad on this particular <laughs> episode. And Andy Hinchcliffe, an eighth England cap accompanied by an apologetic note from Glenn Hoddle who admits that just taking one left back to France 19 it was a foolish decision, although he undermines the sentiment somewhat by blaming Eileen Drury. <laughs> Do get in touch. At Set Piece Menu is where we are on Twitter. Setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Because this is a pre-recorded triumvirate of episodes over the holiday season, uh, we will catch up with all your correspondence uh, when we return in the new year. So even though tis the season to be merry, we're going to spend the next half an hour complaining about more stuff. Yes, it's part two of our seasonal special, therefore heavily discounted, about football and the media. Check out part one if you haven't already. It talked about bias, real or more likely perceived. So with that unimpressively boxed off, we move on to now how football uses the media and how the media uses football. In other words, and slightly more pithily, does the hashtag agenda work both ways? Is there an almighty mutual back scratching going on? Is what you hear, particularly pre and post match, the result of an unspoken wink and nudge between perhaps manager and the media. Now, I know that the hashtag agenda is something that is wider than just football, but hashtag agenda has been particularly used over the last months, years, to describe that uh, an organisation or the media as a whole uh, has an agenda against their club. But perhaps it's time that we draw back the curtain and let those people know that sometimes that hashtag agenda is actually created by the club that those fans support. So, who would like to start on the hashtag agenda working both ways. Why are you looking at me? Because, because you've, you've, because uh, you've said who would like to start, but you've looked you at me. I've turned straight so, to Steve. I've turned so to Steve because Steve. I, was, I was wondering for an update on your uh, your current nosebleed the, situation. The, the flow has been stemmed well, thank for you the very time much being. Indeed, for everybody so I can eating now contribute uh, fully. <laughs> <laughs> it's like when you, who, who do you throw the ball to? The opening, the opening mm. ball in a, a test match. 
you're going to go to your, your, your main man, aren't you? Chinch well, does cricket. Yeah. Chinch does cricket. I love to steam off. Yeah, yeah, steaming off a long run, Chinch. <laughs> love to steam off. Yeah, steam I, off. I don't know what steaming <laughs> off is. Um, well, actually, the yeah. reason I look to you, Steve, is because you and I spent a lot of time... Um, in our more formative years in the company of Sir Alex Ferguson, who perhaps is the best example of somebody who completely understood how he could use the media for his own hashtag uh, agenda. Uh, So much so that you had to understand how he played the game before entering into an interview with him, because if you didn't enter into it... uh, under the auspices of his terms, yeah. you were going to get nothing. You might get a hairdryer, you might get a rollicking, but you had to play the game by his rules. Well, what he said on any subject for a long period of time carried greater weight than, than almost anybody in, in British football. So obviously there needed to be a little bit of give and take. And he was such a formidable figure that he had an element of control over the media in terms of banning certain members of it once, twice, multiple occasions. And twice. For, you, you, got, you got twice. You got well, twice. Well, well, yeah, <laughs> well, I basically was covered by the, the BBC blanket ban that was, in, it was about seven, uh, seven years, I think it was in place for. So, yeah, pe- you, there had to be an understanding that you needed to, to deal with him with a certain element of respect. Was there a fear factor involved? Maybe there was for for some. I don't think there was for for all. Yes, maybe there was for you. You, As we can see from the quivering uh, arm that you uh, out uh, extended to interview him at times. It it was a difficult position to find yourself in, wasn't it? I think, you know, you, you didn't want to get banned, but you wanted to make sure you were doing your job correctly. So difficult questions had to be asked. I think it was the way that those questions were phrased mm. that was always the great skill. And, 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 in, and in learning to deal with a character in particular, it didn't just have to be Sir Alex, I'm sure there are, there are others like it as well, in that how you phrase that question and picking the right time to ask it was potentially the great skill. Is it, is it the same today with Guardiola, Klopp, Mourinho? Is but it, they're is not, it a similar they're thing with them? Similar, say? but different, different rules, different personalities. But yeah. in terms of the overall... They're trying to, are they still trying to achieve and have it their way? Well, I'd say it goes back much further. So I think if you look at a lot of the great managers in British history, so Shankly, Clough, Reevey, uh, Jewel. Jewel. <laughs> Paul Jewel. Kendall. Shankly, Clough, Reevey and Jewel. Those four. <laughs> and nobody else. The... <laughs> they are all... They were all to an extent... They, Happy they, Christmas, Paul Jewel. Yes. They intuitively understood... How they would, how they wanted to be portrayed in the media. So the fact that Clough wasn't kind of Clough is the best example, but Cluffy wasn't doing it because for no reason, just as he thought. That was just that was. him. It wasn't the club saying be like this. It wasn't the club that, saying that was him saying be like that. It was all from him. Yeah. But he wasn't doing it for no for no reason. He was doing it because it created an image and it it was a it was a PR exercise effectively. It's never retrospectively, it's never looked at like that. No one ever says, oh, you know, Clough did, Clough did what Fergie did and and talked about. Things so that he could shape a narrative around himself, but that's what he was. That's obviously what he was doing. Same with Shankly. Same with was Clough the first to, to do that type of thing. Would you I, say? I wouldn't say. I think Shankly had an element Shankly of it. Before yeah. then. Shankly was before. Him. Clough was so much of a, a huge persona. Was yeah. it noticed he, more with Clough him? was the first, and actually the influence of Clough on kind of what we think managers should be like in Britain is really yeah. important. But Clough, Clough pro- knew the media as well because he was a he, pundit as well as being a manager. He intuited how it worked. He understood both the, the print media and television as well. He was probably the first to really understand TV. Clough, that's that, that's maybe the uh, the the the, pa- the personality. The yeah, the, the the sort of projection of a character. That's what Clough did. Shankly was this sort of wise Scottish man. 
and I think he was probably more of a print age, but Clough understood TV. So it, it has it predates Fergie. I think that's absolutely or, or, absolutely important to or, point out. Although with Fergie, of course, he existed at the time when you know football was transitioning to sort of within the within the, the sphere of rolling news, you mm-hmm. know, Sky Sports news, blanket coverage on on the radio, many more column inches in the newspapers, and that you know every utterance was was clung to and that you could make an entire back page story out of one sentence that was spoken by Sir Alex Ferguson. Yeah, and, and how baffled he would be by the hourly repetition on Sky Sports News. Obviously it's his news conference. <laughs> the yeah, amount yeah. of times that he would he would either ask his media representative or himself if he knew how to or who to contact, he would just say Put it out once and then don't do it again. Why must I see my face every 15 minutes, basically out of every break? Yeah, yeah. There was a headline sequence and it was Sonic Ferguson walking up the steps into the into the training ground arena where he would do the press conferences. He, he would not ever understand why his, his press conference needed to go out quite so many times but in the day. What Steve says is a, really, is a really good point, that Clough probably understood, if Shankly understood... News, the newspaper what newspapers required to create an image of somebody somebody and Clough understood what TV, what made TV make an image of somebody the Ferdy probably understood quicker than anyone and better than anyone how to play that t- that 24 hour rolling news saturation coverage game that was what Ferdy did so well t- was to make sure that he was always at the head of it and he probably designed the system that we have now where managers like Mourinho like Klopp Guardiola and Conte not quite so much to be we'll, honest we'll come on to them because that you're right they're, they're slightly different um, let, yeah let's let's stick with those who we feel very cl- particularly pre-match we're talking here yeah. post-match is a whole other argument and we'll, we'll come to that as well later but particularly pre-match those who are able to we're going to use this word a lot agenda who are able to the sh- should shape the agenda particularly with an upcoming match in mind or an upcoming clash of per- personalities in mind to shape that agenda so that it is very much focused on what you want it to be focused upon. And that was what, and it, the only reason we used for Alex Ferguson is because both Steve and I had this opportunity, Rory, you did sometimes as well, um, to go to a pre-match press conference or to interview him pre-match and to be so very aware that you would really only ever get a good line if it was a line that Fergie wanted exactly. you to yeah, have, yeah. rather than you being able to prize something out of him. And indeed, if you did prize something out of him that he didn't want to be out there, he would often be very angry at you. Mm. Um, he would not necessarily ban you for that, but he would he would make sure that you knew that that, that was that was beyond your it your terms of reference. Of interviewing him, anyways, though, isn't it? If they do have this. They're in control of what they say oh, and what they want out there. It's, it becomes a bit of well, a gauntlet. Yes. It, but it, kind it of was also prof- incredibly fresh. You know, in a way, you might as well just write something. <laughs> I will just read it out because actually, uh, we're not getting anything fresh from you because you're in control but or, or a, you're trying like to have that, that type of question. It's, it's, it's like question. It's, it's never spoken. Yeah. So you, it's just implicit. It's, it's understood. And so you have to play your role and he plays his role. And never at any point do you actually was say, that something you two I'm going to ask you about this and you're going to be saying this. I know that at some point I'm going to have to. He knows at some point you're going to have to ask he will have something prepared and if he wants to say something else that is not something that you've even thought about asking him about then he will say it to any god-given question you ask mm. how are you sir alex i've got to say rafa benitez is an absolute disgrace you know he he, he will get his point of view across uh, right. was that something you were aware of or became aware of as you interviewed yes, him or were, were you warned that this is this is how it can go down you're right, I can I can see how it can it, it can be viewed negatively that if somebody has a control of, of the media does that devalue the job that the media is doing and obviously 
you know, the, 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 the weight of his words and the strength of personality he had in, in perhaps being able to, to influence and dictate was overall a negative thing. But then as an, either as an interviewer or within a press conference environment, the great skill that came into it was being able to judge mm. the mood on that day, the environment, the atmosphere, and know whether today was going to be a day to get good stuff and, you know, fill your boots whilst, mm. the, the, you know, he was, good, yeah, yeah. whilst he was in, in, a, in a mood for talk. Or if it was clearly not a day to challenge him, to just, you know, retreat a little bit and, and keep your powder dry for another time. So, so you, you had to change your approach. And, and so there was a skill in that, I think, that you yeah. thought, well, you know, and, and actually, I know he was talking about pre-match in particular, but I always used to think post-match, interviewing in post-match yeah. was the great, because if something had happened in the game and you knew you were going to need to get, you know, Sir Alex's verdict on the, on the big talking point, the big refereeing decision, you had to quickly assess from his body language as he came out of the dressing room area as to whether today was going to be the day to push him. If he came out... You can't out, just ask the question. You can't well, just say, what Obviously, you you ha- it's the way you ask oh, the question. And okay. you know, if he came out, he was all calm and serene. The chances are that he'd had a rant and a rave to the players. Mm. He'd got it out of his system and he was now ready to discuss calmly with you what had happened in the game. And that was if, his theory. Get it all out of yeah. the system as quickly as possible so that by Monday morning, mm. you start afresh. But if he hadn't been given that opportunity and you could see the fire burning within his eyes, yeah. you knew you had to tread very carefully and you had to couch the question in the right way to give him the opportunity to talk about to talk about it in, the, in the, the, the manner that he wanted to discuss it. Because if you, you press the wrong button on that particular day, then you could be toast for a few weeks, quite frankly. All ah, right. Because yeah, well, speaking to the pitch side reporters that we work with, especially post-match, there's certain coaches, Mick McCarthy, Roy Keane, when he was coaching, they'd say, well, I want to ask him this question, but I can't because it's Mick or it's Roy and I know the kind of mood. And I say, just ask the question. It's not your... He said, well, actually, as you're saying there, there is a skill to say, well, if I ask that... He's just going to bat it back by saying yes or yeah. no, and we get nowhere. Mm. And it frustrated me. And just thought, well, you just ask them, don't you? It's up to them how they answer it. And he said, no, you've got to be really... With Fergie, again, that's the, the top yeah. of the tree. He's, he was the master at that. So you had to learn how to get the stuff out of him that yes. you wanted. And the difference is there, your one-on-one will come on to press conferences mm. afterwards as well, because there is there is a little bit of hunting in packs there, which, which the press are, are much more able to do mm. because our hunting impacts the broadcast media's hunting impacts is to simply wait to see the host broadcaster so the sky guy will ask it in a certain way you'll see the response and you kind of eavesdrop to, to see how it, and you, you think about rephrasing it in a certain way or you know that that's worked and the other way of doing it is to, to before they start rolling is, is to simply say I'm, I'm going to have to ask you about this um, so you've warned them mm. or you go to the press representative and you say what, what did he say about that and and they will give you some guidance if they're amenable to do so. Sometimes they're standing as far yeah, yeah, yeah. away as, as the media will do. But we're, yes, we're talking about somebody being of such a great personality that they're able to manipulate the agenda um, to their own purposes pre-match. Post-match is a very, very interesting situation because so much of what you see on the, news, on the newspaper back pages, on the televisions, on Sky Sports News is crafted by a combination of journalist and manager. Um, so if you're at a post-match press conference, Rory, mm-hmm. and you, it could be a Mourinho, it could be, it could be a Guardiola, they walk into the press conference room, 
how much have you determined with your colleagues, particularly when you were working for the Times and, mm. and the Telegraph and you were, you were doing news-based stuff, um, how much would you determine previously what you would like to get out of that manager and how much did you think, well, do you know what, I'm just going to uh, let roll him up and let him spin his own top? Uh in terms of pre-planning, it was it was kind of unspoken. It was never you, you wouldn't kind of have a huddle before the press conference and think, right, we need to get him on this, this, and this to make him say that. You kind of knew what he was likely. You didn't. Most press conference, press conferences after games last about five minutes, with some exceptions. Everyone wants to go home. You need you need the stuff really quickly, and you need to write it and then get cracking. The the manager doesn't want to be there for very long anyway. So the, there's. I don't know if it, how much it's the case that the, the media are kind of lying in wait for the manager. Sometimes you know what the manager, you can guess what the manager, what line the manager want, might want to go down. So. And you've also seen them on the broadcast. Yeah, you've seen the broadcast stuff. So you, if they've said anything particularly kind of explosive there, you might you might pursue that. I think a lot of the time it's it's fairly fairly by the numbers almost that you kind of want to. If you've got an idea for, I find press conferences are most useful if you've got an idea anyway, and then you can get them to to validate or invalidate your theory or your the piece that you want to write and sometimes you just write it regardless of what they say anyway <laughs> because they're wrong and, the, and also you've got a deadline and you've got a deadline you've only got one idea the <laughs> the um and also I mean, we, we talked about bias in the last episode but managers aren't the best people to ask about matches because they're biased they're not they're not no. impartial observers i've got a big thing that is kind of amazingly relevant about we too often as a media as a whole we ask managers questions that we know the answers to just so they say it and Jurgen Klopp has a equally big problem I think with, with being asked questions that he perceives are clearly leading so you see it quite often when he when someone says to him you know what do you make of the penalty decision and he'll say well did you think it was a penalty and the, the sort of reporter generally goes uh, yes or no, or whatever. Well, oh, it's it, not. It's not my place to have no, it's an not opinion. My place no. to, to say my opinion. They do that a lot, haven't they? Coaches yeah. start to throw it back at the reporter. Well, with, they have. And and make it about them so rather than about the coach. Sometimes it's 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 never a great plan. I would say I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I necessarily like it when Klopp does it. I don't like it at all when he then follows it up with, "Well, you, I want to talk to someone who knows about football," as he did with Patrick Davison of Sky after the Merseyside derby uh, a few weeks ago. But the the thing that Klopp seems to really hate is being asked questions that he thinks, where he thinks the answer is obvious, and all you want is his words, so that you can say, because he knows how it works, so he thinks you are trying to say, Jurgen Klopp last night blasted Craig Pawson for giving a penalty against Dejan Lovren, when what he thinks you should be doing as an honest journalist is saying, I'm here as an impartial observer, so I should write what happened and what was right and what was wrong, and who did what well and who did what badly, so I should say, Craig Pawson gave a penalty to Everton, but it wasn't a penalty. That's what Klopp thinks. He thinks uh, the media's job is to be reporting impartially on, on the event. Is not he being disingenuous, do they, or do they do that in Germany? Uh, I'm not sure. I don't speak German, so I don't know well enough yeah. the coverage. I, it, it could be that he's being disingenuous and it's a defence mechanism. I, I, think he, I, th- I genuinely think he means it. I think, and I, it may be kind of conforming to my bias, because I think he's right. I think too often we seek out the validation of a manager saying something to create a controversy. But There's that element... There's an element of crazy to that, though, Rory. In that, if you know, Jurgen, if Jurgen Klopp's belief is that because he doesn't think it's a penalty, that's also what an impartial observer should think, and that's what should be written. Yes. So therefore, he isn't required to comment upon that because the evidence is there for all to see. Then, whilst you know, I respect that that is his worldly view. It's clearly incorrect because it, it, it is important to 
the the fan what the manager thinks about the yes. key moments in the game. It is considerably less important to the fan that what you know the journalist representing the Times at that particular game whether he thinks it's a penalty or not. Well, so we can we can debate whether the fan is right in this case or not. <laughs> well, of course well, we yeah, can. But yeah, yeah. Th- th- no, that, you're right. Is, the fan wants to hear. Yeah, you know, and, and huge amounts of of money are injected into the game by the media, by television in particular. And therefore, you know, unfortunately, whether he likes it or not, Jurgen Klopp and any other... So we're only picking on Jurgen because yeah. he happens to be the manager we're talking about at the moment, you know, needs to accept that he's going to have to come out and answer questions. And perhaps if we were thinking about a way in which the situation could be better for everybody involved, is that if there was a certain sort of agreement of courtesy between everybody involved in the process that... I have to ask questions, you have mm. to answer them. And if everybody was played nicely, actually the coverage might be better as a consequence because it would just be a case of, you know, question answered, question, question asked, question answered, you know, and, and there are the quotes to support the evidence and, and to illustrate the story. So whilst I've got a, a sympathy with his particular view, I think he's got to, you know, he's got to come out and answer the questions. The other thing is, is just going back by comparing it to the Alex Ferguson thing is, again, if Rory has given us an example of the way that Jurgen Klopp is perceived as approaching interviews. So, again, as the interviewer, you need to use your skills to make sure that you get what you, what's required out of that situation by learning from experience. Yeah, yeah being ready. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. No, and I, I think the, the, the really key point there is that too many managers lose sight of why the the football media exists and it sounds really kind of holier than thou and it's not meant to but we are all there whatever our roles to communicate to fans this is this is what i think is has been completely lost with coaches that any answer you give is for your fans yeah it's not about me and you yeah or me saying i'm right and you're wrong the fans want to hear what the coach of that, that their club thinks about a big a big incident so throwing it back at reports and saying well what do you think you should say, well, it isn't anything to do with me. Your answer is massively important to hundreds of thousands of your fans. I'm not sure they get reminded of that before they get interviewed. It isn't about Sky trying to have a go at you. It's no. not about me as an interviewer trying to have a go at you, have a dig at you. It's about your, your answers are really important because they, they are the ones that are going to be watching But this. then you get caught in this ridiculous situation where the, the media are there because to convey a message to fans. Yeah. Basically, that's who's reading the newspapers, who's watching the TV. The... Yeah, the managers hate the media because the media ask them questions. And the fans also hate the media because the media ask the managers questions. So the media is kind of trapped where everyone's hating them for trying to be this conduit between yeah. the two. The, but that is something that, that isn't em- em- emphasised enough. Do all the co- do all, some coaches must enjoy... Because they, they maybe have done a bit of work no. with... No. Do they all hate it? Because Generally, if they didn't want to have to do it, they wouldn't do it. There are those. And actually, you're, you're an example. You didn't speak to the media a whole point at any point during yeah, your yeah. career. But yeah. then when you retired, you became a member of the media. There are those. Outrageous. Managed, but was her gamekeeper? Was, was that lack yes. of interest from the media? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think it was, yes. My career was just so bland, wasn't it? Anyway. But then you've got managers who work as pundits when they're not in work. Yeah. And then yes, they get yes, into a yes, job again yes. and they are... Terrible with the media, miserable. Yes. So yes, they completely understand how it works, but they deliberately rail against it. And if if you're Patrick Davison in that situation, Jurgen Klopp says to you, "What do you think?" You say, "Well, I'll tell you when you pay me five million a year, like you're earning." So you know th- there there are lots of very childish ways of getting yeah. around it. In because you could argue that the manager is being childish, but we're talking about managers who are able to fashion the conversation to their liking post match. Right. So what? And the crucial thing here is that they managers and they all do it now. So I. We've kind of traced the 
the etymology of it through through Clough and Chantley and Fergie to this kind of you use the media. What Sepp Herbert, the former coach of West Germany, said before, after the game is before the game. So everything you say after a match leads up to the next match. So you have to win that week. Mourinho is a, is that is obsessed with winning the week. He might lose at the weekend occasionally. He will win the week. He will make sure that conversation is to his liking. They all do it. Mark Hughes does it at Stoke. Pardew does it at West Brom. Managers, I guess, in, in the championship and lead one and lead two try to do it on a much smaller scale. You want to win the week. And it normally manifests. There are sort of slightly wackier examples with with rows and bust-ups and criticising players and what have you. But normally it manifests in the, broader, in the broadest pattern of managers want to talk about individual incidents more than they want to talk about collective performances. And not just because they want to not talk about their performances, it's, it's genuinely that they want to have somebody talk about something else. So you mentioned Mourinho. Look at the times that his teams have lost and look at what he says after those games and consider the amount of times that what he says is something completely irrelevant to the conversation that would have happened if he hadn't have said it, but also is designed to set off a series of reactions which mean that the conversation becomes so entrenched somewhere else that nobody spends any time talking about whether his team have performed badly. But are we still falling for it? I know maybe working in the business, we see a lot of it, so we're maybe a bit more aware of but it. But that's are his power. Is, are they, are they still falling if, for if, it after If all he these has years? a go at, at a referee yeah. after a match or criticises this, that or the other, when his team has played, played badly, obviously everybody's going to pick up on that. We, we spoke last week about the fact that the big clubs, the narratives, the the fact that we focus on things going badly for them. If that manager, again, cult of personality, surrounds Jose Mourinho, he is the modern Fergie in that everything that he says carries more weight than others. If he says something about a referee or complains about this or says that guy's diving, that is going to immediately carry more water than a conversation that others are having about his team playing. Oh, you know so, why he's doing it, absolutely. Yes, but it's, are people it's still no, falling it's for it? It's diverting our attention. Mirrors, yeah, yeah, completely. What, what I would say, and he's not the first. And no, 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 no. And what I would say about Mourinho is that we've now reached the stage where he does it so much that the conversation is actually just about the distraction technique. It's not really about what he says. I don't think anyone takes it particularly seriously when he says, oh, you know, the referee should have done this, that or the other. I don't think that that doesn't lend itself to five days of conversation. What Mourinho is relying on now, I think, is that we will all just talk about his distraction technique. So he could come out and say after a game, well, very we lost. Meta, very meta. We lost because <laughs> because three weeks ago I had the double glazing sorted out. And to be honest, the guy did a really poor job, so I've been really cold. His name is, you know, George... Pendragon, so you go and sort him out. He's normally a very reliable double glazing yeah, exactly. man, by yeah. the way. Dragon but windows. Yeah. The, um, <laughs> George has clearly just had an off day round at Mourinho's yeah. house. So Google him. Honestly, excellent review. So <laughs> it doesn't really matter what Jose says now because the conversation is all about the distraction technique. So it's in, and but we we in the media we do fall for it. I think we fall for the the second stage of it, which is the the distraction technique conversation. The reason for that is is key, and that's that as we said last week. We don't have sports newspapers. So we have a culture where it is easier to understand that the manager is cross with the referee than it is to understand that the that the team's attacking patterns did not function properly because the number 10 was too deep or whatever. Or Romelu Lukaku's defending at set pieces being yeah, so we, rubbish. Hinchcliffe-esque. <laughs> we, we have this, this broadly simplistic view of football that is not entirely related to the lack of sports newspapers but is partly related to that. It's related to a sort of desire to 
to not talk about tactics, the sense that tactics are boring, it's very British, so we don't talk about that stuff. We like talking about individuals, which is our vision of football as a sport that isn't, all of our other sports are very individualistic, rugby and cricket. We still see football through that prism where it's, it's a matter of individual will rather than collective organisation, which is why you get the Roy the Rovers characters, Brian Robson and Gerard and all that, that they all, John Terry, they all come from that canon of characters who are individuals who decide games, which is something that we believe in deeply more than teams winning games. That all feeds into this idea that the manager can come out and say this one thing, manager is crossed with referee, or manager blames double glazer. and <laughs> Both equally likely. Equally likely. And we want to talk about that because it's easy to sell to the editor who doesn't like football because it's more... It's a, it's a simpler concept to understand. It's one-on-one, basically. It's one-on-one, yeah, yeah. and it's a, it creates a narrative that is... That soap opera narrative that, that is what... British football sells itself on. Which ties into the fact, as you've already alluded to, Rory, that effectively with the big name managers of the big clubs, you might get 10 to 15 minutes with them before a game and you'll get five to 10 minutes maximum with them after the game. And that's got to set the agenda especially from a newspaper point of view, and then as obviously from sort of radio and television rolling news as a consequence, that's got to set the agenda for for days, maybe even the entire week. So if you've got a manager that is clearly spouting something nonsensical, if you had more time with them, you could call them out on it. Uh, Let's use the example of Antonio Conte perhaps complaining about the depth of his squad. Well, that's clearly absurd because they've got gazillions of players out on loan I all thought, over I Europe. gazillion was an actual player. Then. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, he is. He's, he's, he's 17, he's, he's Brazilian. He's a Vitesse Arnhem. <laughs> They've got, you know, they, they, there's 30 or 40 Chelsea players out on loan at clubs all over Europe. So if the Chelsea manager comes out and complains about the lack of strength and depth in his squad, it's clearly absurd because actually he's got the, as, as the biggest squad of anybody in all of Europe. However, there's a great story there, isn't there? Antonio Conte you know, calling out Roman Abramovich, yeah. we need to spend money in the next transfer window. I need cover here and here and there. And he might, you know, might look at a, a, the bench one day and there might only be six players on it or there might be a couple of youth team players throwing on the bench. And it's, is that a fit, thinly veiled message to the owner that, you know, I need a huge war chest to spend in the next transfer window. So that is a great story, isn't it? That's a good headline mm. on the back page of the paper the following day. Mm. Journalist says, actually... Sorry, sorry to sort of interrupt this with facts, Antonio, but why don't you just recall that lad from yeah. you know, Ajax or that one who's on loan at Hertha Berlin? They can play in that position. It's not such a good story all of a sudden, is it? So, yeah. it, whereas if you've got the... So, so that's, that's one element of it, is that the journalist wants the good copy and that is being provided and by the manager. That's why we fall for it. You yeah, asked why which we is why fall for it. Yeah. And, and, and subsequently, you know, the journalist is not going to get an opportunity to follow up with the manager... Mm. The, the following day, the day after, throughout the course of the week to, to deal with the minutiae of a, a situation. So you need, to, you need to take the story when it comes along. Well, you're also on, you're also on deadline. That's the other thing. Yeah. That the, and I've, I've had it in, in the past where, where I've been in press conferences and a line has been developing and naively, the, the, all journalists have done this. I'm not setting myself up as some, some sort of moral authority. I have asked the clarifying question and said, hang on, did you mean to say that? And the manager's gone, no. And it's ruined it. And, and then everybody gone, goes, oh, oh, You can feel oh, the kind of, yeah. oh, for God's sake. Does he, because everyone want, every, never underestimate the importance that journalists want to go home. You know, you've been there for a long time, probably had quite a long drive. Parking's a nightmare. And, do you know what I mean? You, you're, it's 10 o'clock at night. You want, you want to go. You're tired. You've had a long working day. 
and it's not a particularly tough job, but it is, you know... There are weekend matches that kick off at 12.30, so... There are moments <laughs> where, where you do think, right, I could do without this. And you do have a deadline, you're under pressure, so you don't want to, you don't have a lot of time to play with. So yeah, you probably do take the first line that comes along. So th- there is a symbiotic relationship there because the managers get to shape the agenda, the newspapers get to benefit from it because it means the reporters can go to, the, to their editor and say, we've got this, isn't it great? This is Conte complaining about Abramovich which means the editor can go to his editor or her editor and say, we've got this story, which the big editor who doesn't like football will understand because it's two men arguing and that's what that, that's interesting. And, and you get to follow it up. Yes, yeah, so you start a conversation. So sometimes yeah. it's the journalists who get to win the week because they get to have a comment piece which might may or may not say about all those yeah. players on loan. It may well talk about the relationship between Conte oh, and Oh, the Abramovich. facts can be explored later yes, on. They, yeah, they, absolutely, haven't, yeah. they haven't spoken in six weeks. And, you know, all these things will, will, until Antonio Conte then speaks to the media next when he would have been very carefully briefed by, yeah. his, by his press person who would have said... Do you know what? You need to remember this, that and the other. You need to kill this story by by using this method, this mm. sentence, like that. And so, you know, it, it either gets inflated more because the yeah. manager says something or it gets killed. So sometimes journalists can win the week. Journalists never win. The, <laughs> there is but the, the, there is an, a, a knock-on effect to this which relates to what Chint said before, which is that what managers say is theoretically aimed at fans. So if you take out the whole kind of distortion media, who, you know, are the media doing this for their own benefit, which to an extent they are, there's no point denying that. The media wants the good story, so the, the quotes that make the good story get picked up and you run with them. The fans get the message, even though there's this conduit in the middle. The, what the fans hear is the manager complaining about the referee, or the manager complaining about the diving, or the manager complaining about this, that, or the other, to excuse away his defeat, or the, the fixture pile-up. The fans then take that as gospel, effectively, and it becomes a, a way of excusing the defeat, and that's why the manager does it. The, that's the most basic reason. You blame the referee, it's not your fault. So the fans will think, well, the, it's not that the manager's terrible. The referees have just been awful for 38 games, which is why we've not won any of them. <laughs> it's a conspiracy. If, if only the referees weren't terrible. That's the, that's the basic idea. And that, that is a really important part of it, because that then creates the at- an atmosphere, and referees are the best example, where fans are uniformly convinced that referees are not worth respecting, yeah. that they are all terrible, and that percolates down all the way to grassroots where you get 15 year old kids in Manchester setting up referee and support groups because people are abusing them so much in Sunday league games that comes directly from what the managers in the Premier League are doing blaming referees for, for their own shortcomings yeah, there's enough arguments about role models on the, on the pitch well, yeah. there, there could be some better role modelling uh, in terms of that as well, well I did read that there was a strong report from, from I know it's just one United fan saying they'd listened to Mourinho's post-match comments and said about the referee and said really that's a massive smokescreen as to what has just gone on and they went on and on about the failings of the team the tactics the players who shouldn't have been playing I thought well at least one person one United fan has seen a true reflection of that game so whatever Mourinho said he said no clearly that is the, no, he, he might be in the minority there might be 100 United fans who think that way there might be 50,000 who say well Mourinho said this that is absolutely the reason we lost the Manchester I, I Derby think, I think with Mourinho Mourinho's kind of a bad example now because I think with Mourinho the majority of fans are thinking well he's doing it to create a smokescreen but even even that is him is what he wants he wants people thinking isn't, isn't Jose clever because he's made a smokescreen yeah. what he doesn't want is people thinking you know, I'm really defensive against Man City. It was quite embarrassing. And also, you think the City post-match celebrations again will kind of fuel that a little bit? Does that take away from the game a little bit? As well, people are talking uh, about that rather than the game again. Yeah, that's better. Whether, yeah, whether who briefed about that originally would be interesting. Yeah, yeah. So it would be fascinating yeah. to find out exactly where that came from. Do, because do the coaches and the clubs? Because it seems you've got these huge kind of individuals in charge of clubs now. Are the clubs a little bit wary of their coaches and what they 
can and can't say, the way the coaches see themselves. Do they see themselves as part of clubs? We're all in this together. Or do, do these coaches, are they so such giant individuals now that they see themselves as slightly separate from the clubs that they coach? I know that at least one Premier League club didn't want to hire Mourinho specifically. That, this is just this is an example, it's not a Mourinho thing, because of the, in inverted commas, noise that he comes with. Because they'd be worried about what he because might say and how that the, might reflect on the club? Yeah, because yeah. what he brings is a certain degree of chaos off the pitch and attention that clubs don't necessarily, not all clubs want. So United, mm. I think, probably decided they did want it. Um, I think after, after originally not after wanting originally it. not wanting it, but you you look at you, and again this isn't a Jose thing. I, I, I'm not sure he's a great example because I think he's almost gone too far and it's too much what he does. I think it's, it's mo- less nuanced with I him now. It's, mo- it's actually more interesting w- when you see the managers of smaller teams do it. When you see Mark Hughes doing it, Mark, no no one blames referees more more often than Mark Hughes. Mark Hughes loves blaming a referee, and it is because he is trying to. Sh- it's exactly the same thing. It's just he he gets away with it because it's Mark Hughes and it's Stoke and no one really cares. But he's doing exactly what Jose does. He's it's using his own shortcomings by blaming the referee constantly. But with Mourinho, it's interesting that both United and Real Madrid, two jobs that he, he has had and certainly Real Madrid did well at, didn't actually want him in the first place because of all this stuff. They were, they were real reservations. So you wonder if Mourinho, who's clearly a wonderful manager, one of the best of the last 20, 30 years, probably could have had quite a lot of better, could maybe have had an even better career if he hadn't engaged in all this nonsense. And, and he may well in the future because he might calm down. There other managers have mellowed. Um, want to come on to David Moyes in just a moment. Yeah, but, just, uh, but what the, the point that Chinch made there is is about the power of the personality of yes. the managers. And I yes. do think that some clubs struggle to control that. Either you know they're just not willing to or mm. that they're, they're, or they not, they're not able to. And, and I do think it would be beneficial for everybody really is if there was a much clearer and I don't think this would suit I think the Premier League they love all this stuff don't they it keeps the Premier League high on the agenda in terms of well, in the absence points. of Ronaldo and Messi you yeah. have Guardiola and, and exactly. Rooney that's, that's the, the, the selling point for the Premier League at the so moment. I, I don't think they'd go for this but I do think everybody would benefit from a, a, you know that when you sign your contract to work for a Premier League club that you know these are the things that are expected from you in terms of your media commitments these are the type of people you expected to speak to and you know the regularity and for how much time that would be and that if then subsequently the media understood their responsibility in terms of making sure that you know the questions were asked in a, a fair and reasonable way that we'd all get along much better and 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 the, I think the public in terms of the information that became available to them as a consequence would improve but I, th- I think I think the machine quite likes these peaks and troughs, doesn't it? There must be a relationship between these two subjects, between the subject of why fans perceive so much bias and the way the, med- the, way the media plays off and benefits from managers deliberately misleading information. Yeah. There must be... I can't quite articulate it, but it feels like those two things probably aren't unrelated. Let's just hope that they're related insofar as they are parts one and two of a discussion about uh, media on an excellent uh, set piece menu yeah. football podcast. Mm. The reason I wanted to bring up David Moyes is because we were talking about the cult of personality and the direct route from manager to fans and sometimes that is very much within the power of a manager to have a whole fan base thinking like them. David Moyes, one of the reasons he didn't succeed at Manchester United, quite apart from the football and all of those issues, is that quite a lot of the time he was too honest with the media. Managing a club like Manchester United brings with it a certain responsibility to continue, whether it is a cult or whether it is just a sense of arrogance about the way that you project yourself and your club on the world. Manchester United, the biggest club in the world, um, biggest club in Britain, 
most successful club. You have to think about these things when you're the manager. And there's a certain way of behaving in front of the media that means that you should not always tell the truth mm-hmm. to be able to keep that cult going. And so quite often, David Moyes would say things like, Manchester City are better than Manchester United before a derby. That may well have been true. You don't say it. And the press representatives within the club would have been briefing him desperately to not tell the truth in that situation. But David Moyes would far too often, particularly post-match as well, would, would tell the truth. So you like get more respect from actually... But the problem Being was honest that, and you, a you, true reflection. that doesn't work at Manchester United. Yeah. You have to be a, a bigger, bigger than what you are. You have to give a bigger sense of yourself. You have to trumpet a falsehood if you need to, if it continues the, the magnitude of Manchester United's history continuing onwards. And so that, that was one of his failings. And the direct route from manager to fans at that point was the wrong it was the wrong mm. message and even and so often managers and Sir Alex Ferguson would do it he would say something on the Friday morning that he knew his players would hear mm. and it was as much a message to them as it was to the fans David Moyes's message filtering down to the players are already from what we hear a difficult fractious relationship would have further severed any sort of ties of respect because he was saying these things and his players wouldn't have wanted to hear is that, that true Chinch though is that what managers say in press conferences do players pay attention uh, I'm, I always find that a little bit suspicious you'd have to be you have to be as players you, you are on it when you go into a game I've never played for Manchester United I don't know what it was like to, to be at the very top could have done. done but for yeah, decided not to that's <laughs> uh, Everton Sheffield Wednesday instead good choice change um, but the thing yeah we, we knew whatever I, you'd always take whatever a coach said if you're working on a different level at a different club where the demands weren't as great if Danny Wilson said something about an upcoming game against United all the work we've done during the course of it, what we knew about ourselves as individuals and as a team, whether Danny Wilson said, well, we feel we're better than United, we can beat them. We'd say, well, you're just saying that. We know if we beat them, we're going to have to play out of us. We knew what was ahead of us. But when you're Man United and you're trying to maybe fuel this, the belief that the club that you are, it's a different, it's a totally, totally different level. I think, well, why not be honest and say what you feel if City are, but, why, but you can't say it because you're Man United. It's different when you're Sheffield Wednesday. It's a very different kettle of fish because, again, the demands on the club and the players are very different. So, I can, in a way, I can understand that. But it's a bit sad that you feel that coaches have to tell kind of falsehoods just just to just to keep the kind of myth, it's not but myth, it's, but it's, to keep but the size of the club rumbling forward. Well, the legend is true, but yeah. it's, but it's part of part of the manager's job. It's part of the whole an aspect of his management is to give his players and his fans a sense of what it is to be Manchester United and there is genuine value in that. Does it not make the fall harder to take when you you do lose then? But if if you're you're being told you're great but then you lose. But you'll lose lose more often if you're told that you're going to lose. Is there not a framing thing as well though that what Moyes said my favourite Moyes quote was when he said that United needs to be better at defending, passing and shooting, or whatever it was. Because <laughs> <laughs> they were really good at crossing. Yeah. Yeah. And running. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, throwing. So yeah. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. Throwing's yeah. right. <laughs> We've had a bit of trouble lacing up our boots in recent weeks. <laughs> the, there is a framing issue there, because Moyes saying, Moyes saying Man City are better than Man United, which they were that year, isn't that, shouldn't be that controversial. And if we were all grown-ups and but, sensible... But would Sir Alex Ferguson, would Jose Mourinho no, 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 ever no, say no, that? I, t- I fully... Well... I think Mourinho might, in a certain way, yes, but directly. it wouldn't be quite as but the thing is that it was the fact and without it's, nuance. It's the fact that it is then. Pres- this is maybe the link between the, bi- the perception of media bias and what we're talking about now in terms of how the managers use it. That the fan that message is given to the media. The media then r- don't write. David Moyes said Manchester City are better than Manchester United. You have to make it interesting. So David Moyes last night sensationally claimed 
or essentially admitted that Manchester City are better than Manchester United. Or became the first Manchester United manager yeah, to ever yeah, say yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. And that then, that's what the, me- the fans then consume, which is why it's easy for them to think. Again, it's, it's easier to focus on the, on the specific than the general. It's easier to look at that and think, well, the, this is the media being biased. They're being, this, what Moises said is perfectly sensible, makes perfect sense. They are better than us this year. And why is he, he, yeah, he's been slated for it. Obviously, this may have been at a stage when United fans didn't have a huge amount of sympathy for David Moyes. But you then get that the way the message is framed is what passes down to the fans. And that is where you get that problem. I remember talking to United fans about this at the time. And I slightly disagree in terms of that Moyes was being was being honest in that that the United fans felt like honesty wasn't the issue. But they were he was misrepresenting the status of the club. Yes, that's much, much more eloquently put than what I was trying to say that, you know, Yes, I think we all know, we are grown-ups, we know that Manchester City have got a better squad. But for the manager of Manchester United to come out and say, this is going to be a really tough game for us, you know, we are overwhelmingly the underdogs in this particular contest, is that I don't think even, you know, the manager of a mid-table team would come out and be quite so strong in underselling their own team's mm. possibility. They talk about, you know, their respect for the opposition and, you know, that, 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 you know, they would need to have their best day possible and Manchester City would need to be slightly off colour for us to get a result at the game. But they would talk in positive terms about trying to get something from the game. Whereas Mo- Manchester United fans felt as though Moyes was, was setting them up for failure. And that was, it, so it wasn't, he wasn't guilty of being truthful. He was... Being defeated. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, the, 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 yeah. the two the two are inextricably linked yeah. in that example. Um, they aren't always. I appreciate that. Uh, the two two final items uh, before we um, leave you all for another week and wish you a very happy new year is, um, first of all, Chinch, we, we ascertained earlier on that you didn't ever do interviews. Why not? Couldn't be bothered. Worried no, that, no, your, no, no, that no. your words be taken out of no. context. No, didn't no. didn't want to manipulate an agenda. What was the what was the? It reasons? was when I was obviously very young. First started playing for City at 16, 17. There was lots of talk about me. I think Liverpool Kenny Dalglish was coming to watch me play. There's lots of talk about me moving to United. Real Madrid. To, to Real, well, not so much Real Madrid. AC Milan got a mention. Yes, yeah. Paul Lake yeah. and myself, which I found extraordinary. But I, I just wanted to play for my hometown club, where all my mates were. I just wanted to get on with playing. So that was, I think that kind of formed how I felt about the first maybe five years of my career. But then when my eldest son was born, he had a heart condition. I was with England. I got things slid slid underneath the door saying, do you want to do a big News of the World thing about how your son's battling to stay alive and all this stuff? And it it kind of then, if you think, well, no, because clearly my family's my family and it's completely separate from my... So it kind of, again, just... And then once you start along a road of not... Not necessarily. I, I spoke to people. I wasn't. I didn't just kind of walk past them. I did know people, but I, I didn't ever feel I had anything to say or was interesting enough to yeah. be interviewed. Well, you it. can you can see why. <laughs> well, that we've managed to string this my life. particular project so up that, for that every year. I, I just, <laughs> it's a confidence thing, isn't it? You, I just feel well. You clearly want to speak to other people in this team rather than me. Why on earth? What what of, of interest have I got to say? Well, I'm glad that you changed so your why, opinion on that anyway. because we are very very grateful that you utter as you do. But the final point is is that one of the reasons that we started. Um, considering uh, this series about media is because at one point Rory wanted to go off on one so to speak about Pep Guardiola and we, we kept that powder dry because it was related to this very subject essentially you were frustrated that Pep Guardiola wanted to have it both ways 
He wanted to use the media to get his point of view across after a match, but then wasn't willing to speak to the media. There, there was a point with Pep where I felt that he was being a little bit uh, combative, a little bit belligerent with the, with the media, and I think he was looking for looking for sources of, of offence that weren't necessarily there. There is, I, I do find Pep frustrating because I think he can be... I think he's very dismissive. We talked about how Klopp says to people, oh, you don't understand football. I think Guardiola does that. It, it, there's an element of that about Guardiola as well. I think he does want... He wants to have his cake and eat it a little bit with the with the media. He doesn't necessarily... He won't engage in a, in a specific way. So he doesn't do interviews. He... He does answer any question in a press conference. That's always been his big thing, that he will answer any question you put to him. But he's quite often a little bit... He won't engage in legitimately. He just says he's so happy with everything. Is he but predisposed he, against the media yes. in that he thinks that they're looking for lines and he would rather talk about the beautiful game? Yeah, to an extent, I think he's predisposed against the media just as he thinks that they're, they're, they're trying to twist everything. Or they're all idiots. Or they're all and, and he is to an extent, they're all idiots. But the, the other thing, that, the one thing that does actually genuinely annoy me that I could get angry about, but I'm not going to, is <laughs> that Guardiola is very, very anti the media except for the media that are his mates. And that's... You, you, there's a, a core of Spanish journalists, and it's not a criticism of, of them, Catalan journalists rather than Spanish journalists, who get loads of great access to Pep. This is Pep who doesn't do interviews except, except for them, and who, who doesn't do, who won't sort of leak, not leak, but won't give off the record information except for them. And that, that is, a, as a journalist, that's a source of intense annoyance, just that's not honest. That's, that's not, you can't project yourself as being a, I'm above all this, if you're actually doing it, but just to your mates. That's, it's fine, but don't pretend that you're not doing it. Yeah, he, he's, he's guilty at times in that sort of post-match environment of one week being willing to discuss the referee because Manchester City have had a big decision go against them. And then the following week, not be willing to discuss the referee because it happens that Manchester City have had a big decision go in their favour. Oh, we don't talk about the referees. Well, you, but you did yeah. seven days ago in almost, you know, similar circumstances and also as, as Roy's alluding to there is that you know he's being asked about the key moments in the game the big decisions the performance and seemingly feels as though those topics of conversation are beneath him and he wants mm. to be talking about you know the beautiful game the tactics you know his philosophy on football but he's <laughs> expecting that to happen within the five minute yeah. four or five question window of opportunity I'm sure that we'd you all get love to. I'm sure we'd the, all love to sit with him for yeah, so, so he doesn't he, he, he'd, need, he'd need to give the media much greater yeah. access and much more regular access to be able to explore those avenues for the reasons that Rory has already discussed and that's where perhaps some of the contradiction comes around yeah. and he's not the only one that's guilty of it and it was just another point I, I wanted to make because Rory had spoken about you know the, the, the situation in a post-match press conference is, that, is the other thing to, that I, I think is lost sometimes on managers and as a consequence perhaps is, is lost on absorbers of the media is that you have these very small windows of opportunity you know if you're a you know if you're a, a television reporter or a commentator who's gone down to the tunnel to interview the manager after the game you really do only have four or five questions yeah. to cover all of the issues that have, have come up in that match and if you know you've got to ask about the performance you've got to ask about the the key issue in the game that, that did or didn't go in your favour, you know, the missed chance, or you've got to talk about the big refereeing decision, and then perhaps the, the, an injury in the game. And if you forget any of that stuff, 
you've left bases uncovered. So it's very difficult to get into the minutiae and satisfy what the managers believe they should be talking about, whilst also satisfying what your boss thinks they should be talking it's about. There's also Sam Allardyce is very clever at this, because you're absolutely right. A Pixar report will think, right, I'll boil this game down into three points. I've got to get these three points in. The first question to Sam Allardyce, he'll take about two minutes yeah, yeah. to answer it. And he has to be doing it. Nigel Pearson does a very similar thing as well. It rumbles on for so long. And I think you must know what you're doing here because you know how much time we might have. There is, there's going to be time for maybe one question more at best, but you're certainly not going to get to the kind of the crux of the interview. And Allardyce and Nigel Pearson, I thought, were, were, were brilliant to just rumbling on with that first answer. I once uh, interviewed uh, Sam Allardyce and um, he ended up starting a list of every single player in his squad. <laughs> and I, I tried, I tried to cut him off after about twelve or thirteen, and I said, "Yep, yeah, no, I, I understand what you mean, Sam. No, no, got it, Sam." And he said, "Don't interrupt," <laughs> and then carried on, yes. carried on listing. Yes. So they know, and and perhaps fittingly, at this time of the year, we are talking about managers who attempt to both have their cake and also eat it. Um, thank you very much indeed for uh, all your contributions gentlemen to part two of three. Uh, if you have any of your own at setpiecemenu uh, is where we are on Twitter or setpiecemenu at gmail.com Part three will consider the changing media landscape, the proliferation of social media and club media too uh, In the meantime please do subscribe, share rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Uh, thank you to Andy Rory and Steve and to you all for listening. A very happy new year by which time we'll be back with the final part of our conversation about the media on set piece menu 2018 eh it's going to be some year isn't it for us all it really oh, is, can you imagine 2017 was enough yeah uh, let's, really let's you know let's take it down a notch for 2018 that's really right. yeah do you, you, do you, after 2016 and 2017, you kind of feel as though maybe you need a bit of a... We just need a nice, quiet year. Nice, yeah. quiet year, year it's been off. so high no, octane, like, like 1995. One of those, put yeah. your feet one up those, for 50 Oh, 95 was a great year. Oh, great oh, year. Oh, yeah, yeah, I don't want to talk about it. Everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> what's 1995, the, what's the best year of your life, James? Was it 95? Uh, when my sons were born. Mm-hmm. Great years. Um, it down to two so far. <laughs> two great years there. When my granddaughter... Primrose was born, oh, lovely Primrose. which was this year, 2017, yeah. on Bruce Springsteen's birthday. Oh. Double whammy. Take that box. Um, Double whammy, a famous B-side yeah. by Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, greatest, greatest year. Yeah, that's those kind of those things. We have to yeah. say them as well, don't you? Because if people are listening in, your family and that, you've got to say that you like your children. Well, I can safely say that Kate is not listening to this, and Edward yeah. certainly isn't. Just What's your greatest year? I mean, not 2017. I'd say a, a toss-up between 2016 when Hector arrived, oh. <laughs> 2017 when Edward arrived. To be honest, or 2015 when Kate and I got married. So well, 2014 is the average. <laughs> <laughs> You've had a good few years, seven years, basically. Uh, yeah, so I mean, if I you had to pick one of those years, Hector, Hector, say Hector. <laughs> but Hector only arrived on the 27th of December. Yeah. Those four days made the year wondrous, didn't it? Well, they, they did until New Year's Eve when he pooed on the on the um, <laughs> kitchen floor. That's not so great. No.